We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 42 this morning. You're welcome to use one of the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, The passage that we're looking at is also printed for you in the worship guide, so you can always follow along there. But we're looking at Genesis chapter 42. So since the new year, we've been following this guy, this character named Joseph. And what we learned about Joseph very early on, the first week after the new year that we, were, uh, we got into his story, is that Joseph was favored, of his 11 other brothers, he was favored by his father Jacob the most. And we talked about how that was not unhealthy, you know, how did that make the other brothers feel? Well, we know how it made them feel. It made them incredibly jealous and envious of Joseph to the point that they resented and hated him. And so they devise a plan because of their resentment and hatred to get rid of him. So what they end up doing is they end up selling him as a slave and he gets taken to Egypt. So imagine Joseph, 17-year-old boy, um, your brothers sell you into slavery. You are now separated from your home, from your father, from all that you know. God is with Joseph, however. And so Joseph... Uh, becomes the overseer, basically, of Potiphar, um, the captain of the guard. Uh, He becomes the overseer of his house. But what soon happens after that is Potiphar's wife lies and basically tells um, her husband and the other men of the house that Joseph had tried to come on to her, which it was actually the opposite of what had happened. Joseph had run the other way, but they believe her story. And so Joseph gets thrown into prison. And so he's in the pit of prison. You can imagine at this point, everything is working against Joseph, but God remains with Joseph. And so Joseph is in prison with these two other prisoners. One is um, this cupbearer, and he has, the cupbearer has a, a dream, and Joseph interprets a dream for him, and the cupbearer says, there's also a baker, but we won't get into his story because the baker ends up dead. Um, we already preached that. You can go back and read about it. Cupbearer. We're talking about the cupbearer. Um, the cupbearer is released from prison just as Joseph had interpreted from the dream. But J- J- Joseph had told him, hey, like when you get out, tell Potiphar that I interpreted your dream because he, he may think highly of me and let me out of prison. Well, the cupbearer gets out of prison, but he forgets, forgets to tell uh, uh, Pharaoh about this. And so Joseph remains in prison. But finally, last week, we saw that Pharaoh himself has a couple dreams. And that's when it registers with the cupbearer, oh, I know somebody that could probably interpret your dreams. So he gets Joseph out of prison. Sure enough, Joseph uh, interprets his dream. And it basically comes down to a severe famine is going to come upon the land. And so here's the plan that I would counsel you come up with. We store up all this grain and food so that when the famine comes, we have this reserve for our people, but also people from other places will come and, and buy uh, food from us. And Pharaoh says, you're a genius. You're brilliant. I love it. Um, you're basically uh, in charge of it all. You're the governor, if you will. And so that's where we left off with Joseph. So we're about uh, 20 years uh, after Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brother. So a long, two decades had gone by. And if you're following this story, you have to be wondering, especially maybe if you're not familiar with it, are, are, are they going to reconnect? Um, I have a feeling that that's going to happen. Well, if you had that feeling, 
It was true. It was a good feeling because we're going to find that in our chapter this morning. Let me read Genesis chapter 42. When Jacob learned, remember that was Joseph's father, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm may happen to him. Jacob clearly has not learned about favoritism, has he? He's still favoriting one of his sons, favoring one of his sons. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over land. I mean, the irony here, right? It's just drip. This this chapter is just dripping with irony. Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Honest men. Your servants have been never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for this blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. 
He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them saying, the man, the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We have never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when, when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Let's uh, go to God in prayer now and ask him to be with us as we work through his word. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is life to us. And so I pray that you would speak life to us through this particular portion of your word this morning. Come and find us, Holy Spirit. You know where we are. You know what's going on in our hearts and our minds. You know how your word needs to be applied to us in the exact way that we need to receive it this morning. So we look to you, we trust you, we depend on you to do this for your glory, but also for our good. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. So I'm a little late to the game. Okay, I'm really late to the game. Just this year, I started reading through the Harry Potter series. And it's been difficult for me as I'm reading through it because I'm constantly reading these incredible lines, these great quotes, and coming across these stories, and I'm thinking to myself, this would preach. This would be really good to share. But if I do so, they're going to think I'm kind of outdated. I'm, well, I'm going to start with a Harry Potter illustration this morning. So call me outdated, uh, whatever it is, but I'm going with it. So the first book, I'm on the fifth book now. Uh, the first book, The Sorcerer's Stone, if you're familiar with it, you will know that the whole book centers on this sorcerer's stone that is incredibly well protected and guarded so that it doesn't get into the hands of the wrong person. Let me tell you a little bit about how this stone is guarded. Well, first of all, it's guarded by this beast of a dog named Fluffy. And so if you even get to that portion of uh, Hogwarts um, school where this uh, leads to down uh, through all these... Um, places under the school, eventually to the, sor the Sorcerer's Stone, you have to deal with this dog. And that by itself is intimidating. Um, this beast of a dog, Fluffy. But it doesn't stop there, because if somehow you're able to get beyond Fluffy, you have all of these additional blocks and obstacles, these challenges that you would have to work through before you could even get to the location of the Sorcerer's 
stone. What does this have to do with Genesis 42? Well, in Genesis 42, Jacob's, uh, Joseph's brothers are being worked over by God. They're being wrecked. They don't necessarily know it in the moment. They don't know what's going on, but they're being wrecked, and their conscience is being awakened. But here's the deal. When we start thinking about our conscience and the sin in our lives, we're often like Fluffy the dog, aren't we? Well, maybe we're not like Fluffy the dog, but we put things into place like Fluffy the dog and all these additional obstacles and barricades and blocks that would keep anyone from seeing and knowing about our sin that exists. Joseph's brothers have been trying to do this for a long time, 20 years, in fact. And we get these indications, these glimpses throughout this chapter that they are restless. That they're, all these attempts to, to barricade and protect their sin are beginning to deteriorate because God is awakening their conscience. And so as we think about this passage this morning, the, the main idea, the big idea that I have for us is this idea that sometimes God uses severe mercy to awaken us to our true condition. Sometimes God uses severe mercy to awaken us to our true condition. Now, before we go any further, I need to define for you what I'm thinking uh, or what I have in mind when it comes to this severe mercy. I'll I'll define it this way. Severe mercy is God's love experienced in the form of discipline, but is ultimately for our good. Severe mercy is God's love experienced in the form of discipline, and it's ultimately for our good. Joseph's brothers, they had hard hearts because it, it didn't just simply begin with the selling of Joseph into slavery. There's a a longer history, there's a longer record that we've seen as we followed this family in the book of Genesis. Years before Joseph was even sold into slavery, under the leadership of two of the brothers, Simeon and Levi, they had deceived the village, slaughtered all the men of the village, and taken the women and children captive in retaliation for what the men of the village had done to their sister. Reuben, the oldest brother who speaks in this narrative, had slept with his father's concubine. Judah had two sons that were so wicked that the Lord took their lives, and he himself had a fling with his daughter-in-law, Tamar, thinking her to be a prostitute. You, You get the idea here. This family is living however they want. They're doing as they please. They're living without regard to God and his good intentions for them as a family. But as it all begins to come together in this chapter, their stuff, their junk, is beginning to catch up with them. And so as we, we, we start to work through this text, that's what I want you to be thinking about this morning. God's severe mercy. And are you guarding and protecting junk and sin in your own life? Let's look at two primary examples of God's severe mercy in this passage. The first comes in the form of the famine. Right off the bat, we get Jacob, who we haven't encountered in a while, talking with his sons. And the conversation kind of starts in an awkward manner, at least as far as we're concerned, just kind of reconnecting with uh, this family. It says that 
When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Basically, go and get some. What is exactly, what's going on exactly here? There's very evidently awkward dynamics, awkward, awkward relationship dynamics between Jacob and his sons at this point. They're not looking at each other. Um, Jacob is asking them this question like, what are you doing here? You should have left um, to come up with a solution already. Um, get out of my presence, go do this. It's weird, right? These brothers, maybe it's that they're paralyzed. They're hindered at this point. They can't even look at one another well. They can't look at their father to bear, to begin to deal with the junk, what's going on, um, what they're trying to hide and protect and guard. Why wouldn't Jacob's sons want to go to Egypt? Well, there's several reasons for why they possibly wouldn't have wanted to go. For one thing, it was a long trip. We're talking about a 250 to 300 mile trip. So, you know, that's going to take a lot out of them. So it's a long, arduous trip. That's one thing. And it was dangerous. A round trip could take about six weeks. So we're not just talking about hopping in your, your car and, you know, being back in a couple hours. We're talking about a six-week trip in all. And even after they would arrive in Egypt, how could they be sure that they would receive a friendly reception? I mean, they're foreigners going into a a different culture, a different land. How could they know what to expect? They would be vulnerable according to their perspective, and it would be true. And what happened if something would happen to them? Who would then take care of their aging father who is back home? There's all of these reasons, and then there's maybe even a bigger reason. It's possible that the last time that they had even thought about Egypt or heard about Egypt was when? When they had sold their brother into Egypt. So imagine these brothers standing in the presence of their father and their father saying, all right, the the, the remedy for our famine right now, the place where we go to get food is Egypt. Imagine soon as they heard that word Egypt. Maybe you know what this is like. Not with the word Egypt, but another word. Maybe it's a name that God has used at some point in your life to begin to bring some of your stuff, some of your sin to the surface. And in the moment, it was almost too much to bear, almost too much to hear. And you couldn't look somebody in the face, maybe another person, maybe the person that was speaking to you, or um, you were in a, a community setting with others, but you just could not look at anyone. You could not look at them in the eye because that word, that name brought to mind memories that you were trying to guard and protect and keep stored away so that nobody else would ever know about it and so that you would hopefully not ever have to deal with yourself. I would imagine, you know, we don't know for sure, but it would make sense that that would be going on for Joseph's brothers here. Egypt. No, not Egypt. The last, why does it have to be Egypt where the food is? I would go anywhere else, but not Egypt, because we don't want to be reminded of that grave sin that we committed against our brother. God is going to work on them. God is beginning to wreck them. God is beginning to awaken their conscience. You can brush your sin under the rug. You can do your best, work your hardest to try to cover it up, 
to protect it, to put all of these barricades to block it. But it never successfully works in the long run, does it? Just when you think that maybe you can move past all of that, that name comes up. That word is used. Or you have that experience that, brings the, the mem- that causes the memories to come flooding back and your conscience is pricked. It begins to awaken and you realize, oh no, not this. I was hoping to never have to go down this road. Sometimes God applies heavy pressure to our lives. Severe mercy. Because his love for us is actually so deep. Now, as I defined this idea of severe mercy, I said that it was God's love experienced in the form of discipline. Because in the moment, or moments as we're experiencing this, it feels like discipline. It may even feel like judgment. And you get this throughout the narrative, right? I mean, the brothers explicitly, a couple points say, yep, I know what this is. This is God paying us back. God's getting us back for our sin. Now, you know, there's probably some wrong theology there, but there's some truth to it, that God is applying pressure to their lives because he wants to awaken their conscience so that they might re-enter true and real intimacy with him and with others. God has brought this famine about. That maybe is a surprising thing for you to think about, that God has caused this famine. But as we read these chapters in Genesis, it's very clear that this is all being orchestrated by God, that God is working out his plans and his purposes in the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of this severe famine, because he is working his severe mercy into the lives of people. And that's the irony. That's so much of the irony here, that from Joseph's brother's perspective, they hear Egypt and think, no, that's the last place. But we know as the reader, it's going to get a lot more awkward for them. Because not only are they going to go to Egypt, but they're going to bow down in the presence of their brother, not knowing who it is the very one that they sold into slavery. Their sin is going to be right in front of their eyes and they're not even going to know it. God is orchestrating this. God is applying the pressure. And so sometimes in our own lives, when God applies that pressure, it's kind of twisted how it works, what goes on in our hearts, because we get angry and upset with God, don't we? God, how could you be doing this? It's best for this not to come out. It's best for this not to be known or revealed. Why would you be applying pressure on me? Why would you have brought this out in the open in the first place? This is too hard for me and for others involved. This is unloving, but God is relentless in his love. It is not unloving. You see, the thing about God that we have to realize is that God actually really seriously loves us. And when you, when you really seriously love someone, you're willing to do whatever it takes, even if it is really, really hard to do what is best for them. And so for that reason, God is dangerous. God is dangerous. It's not safe to be in relationship with God. It's not safe to follow him because his love is relentless. And he will do whatever it takes sometimes 
to awaken us to our true condition so that we might do business with him and with ourselves and with others. So imagine what's going on here at another level. You know, Joseph's brothers have been able to, for the last 20 years, you know, occasionally maybe they've, their conscience has been pricked and they've thought back to what they did, but they've more or less been able to live the past 20 years without really thinking about God, without really thinking about who he is and what he wants from them and how he might be at work in their lives and in the world. So life has gone on as, as normal for them. They were content in their routine. Are you able to resonate with this? You know, you um, have done something that you deeply regret, and you've brushed it under the rug, and you start to forget about it, and you begin to go back to life as normal, in your normal routine. And then it happens, whatever it is that begins to awaken your conscience. Here's what one commentator says about the backdrop of what's going on. God initiates this suffering. The famine creates the backdrop for the family drama that is about to occur. God is the prime mover here. And God could have simply walked away or forgotten these brothers, right? What does God owe them? they, They sold their own brother into slavery. They had even considered murdering him at one point. God owes them nothing. Why would God want to be in relationship with them? Why would he want them back? God could have forgotten about them for all time, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't just say, fine, forget it. He is at work behind the scenes. He's pursuing these hard-hearted guys. They're not deserving of it. Now, this is an encouraging part of the story because it could be for you right now that you just feel really hard-hearted. Maybe you're aware of it, maybe you're not. Maybe you know that you're in this season of life where you're hard-hearted and you're trying to guard, protect, and barricade the sin in your life. Or maybe it is that you know that you're hard-hearted, but you're, you're not sure where to go from here. You're not sure what to do. You're not sure how to open up and to begin to Um, remove some of these obstacles and barriers that you've put into place. Whatever it is, know this, that God loves you. God loves you. And he doesn't give up on you. And so that very thing that you're pointing your finger at God and saying, how dare you bring this back into my face? How dare you make life so hard for me and others right now? How dare you apply this pressure to me? That is actually God's love for you. God's pursuit of you. So be encouraged by that. Because despite your hard-heartedness and the fact that you are not deserving of God's love, he is after you. All of these things are indications that God is after you. That changes the storyline, doesn't it? It changes the perspective. It's not God necessarily trying to judge you with his wrath. It's God trying to get your attention with his love. Let's look at another one of these severe mercies in the text. You know, first, it's just overall the general famine that we see in verses 1 through 6. And before we move on, let me just specifically draw uh, your attention to verse 6. Joseph was governor of the land. We know that from the previous chapter, but his brothers don't know that. And they st- by the end of this chapter, they still don't know it. They don't know that it's Joseph. 
Um, 20 years have gone by, and we find out that we're given this detail a little later in the chapter that he's using an interpreter between them, even though he doesn't actually need one. It says in verse 6, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Again, the irony, because back um, when we first picked up the Joseph narrative, Joseph has these dreams. And we talked about how it was really arrogant and um, not helpful on Joseph's part, but he tells his family that he's had these dreams, and in his dreams, he's going to be ruling over his family. It's like, Joseph, your, your, your brothers are already bitter towards you. That's not going to help your cause. But that is what this verse is referring back to. It's now the fulfillment of those dreams because here, in fact, Joseph is going to be ruling over his family. And what we're going to beautifully see um, in the coming weeks is how Joseph uses his place of privilege and power for good, for love, and for redemption. But let's look at uh, another one of God's severe mercies in this passage, and it's Joseph's harsh, harsh treatment of his brothers. Now, this raises a, a lot of, of questions. Um, beginning with verse uh, 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine this if you're Joseph? Your brothers are suddenly before you. The brothers who hated you, who despised you, the brothers who sold you into slavery, the reason that you have gone through all of these hard Ships is ultimately because of what those brothers did to him. And here they are, standing right in front of him. What would you do? I know that's a hard question, right? Might be a scary question to answer. What, what would you do? What does Joseph do? Commentators on this passage um, aren't exactly sure. Some think that Joseph is being really harsh on purpose here. Others think that he's partially being harsh, but he's also orchestrating this great strategy. And I don't know what it is. It's probably a combination of both. Um, It does tell us at least twice, I think, that he spoke roughly to his brothers and he does throw them into uh, prison for uh, a, a time. But it's also clear that Joseph has a strategy here. Because first of all, he's wanting to learn. He hasn't seen his brother for 20 years, and he's trying to figure out, okay, is this really them? It it, it appears as though it could be. And Joseph wants to know the details about his father and his brother Benjamin that he was closest to. So he wants to make sure they're okay. He doesn't know if he can trust them. So he's being understandably guarded here by keeping them at a distance. He doesn't want them yet to know his true identity. And so, Joseph treats them harshly. Whatever the reasons for this, God uses this as well. It's the, narrative, the narrative continues that um, it says, they, they say, we're from the land of Canaan to buy food. And then Joseph does this thing where he um, tells them, no, you're spies. You've come here to see the nakedness of the land, meaning that to see where we're weak because you're spies and you want to maybe detect how you could come in and steal our food. And they say, no, we're not spies. And they begin to reveal some of the details at this point. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. How do you think that hit Joseph? We are honest men. 
Wow. I mean, the irony here, it's just, it's almost painful, isn't it? It's almost like you want to go back in time, enter this narrative, and be present to see Joseph's mannerisms and to see exactly how this all unfolded. He says to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they say, we are your servants. We are 12 brothers. Joseph's probably at this point thinking, "Uh, tell me about the 12 brothers. Where's the 12th? Go ahead, tell me. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan, behold, the youngest is is this day with our brother, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of you. He wants to know that Benjamin is okay. He wants to see Benjamin. And let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested. Or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them together in custody for three days. Then verse 18, it picks up by saying that on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. It's a change in strategy here. And there's a a change even in the way that Joseph is speaking here. For I fear God. This is the first mention of God by Joseph. And this represents a turning point in the story here in the chapter. His new uh, plan is this. If you are honest, men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and then bring the youngest to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, this is um, a dramatic point in not only this chapter, but in the lives of these brothers. They said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. The awakening of the conscience. God is doing work on them. He is wrecking them. And here they come to a point where they actually identify and name their sin. That what they did against their brother was sin. The conscience is being awakened. It's being pricked. Something is going on here. They're not only in the presence of Joseph, but they're in the, they don't know that, they're in the presence of one who fears God. And that language would have spoken to them, the God of their people. And why is this Egyptian fearing that God? What is going on here? It could be that here at this moment, they're beginning to realize, okay, God is orchestrating something here, and we are sinners. That's an important point or place for us all to arrive. That place in our lives where we're able to say, without excuse, I am a sinner. What does it mean to be a sinner? We think of sin in terms of wrongdoings that we commit, rightfully so, behaviors, and sin is all of that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, sin is a posture of the heart. It's a posture of the heart in which it looks to God and says, no need of you. I got this. I can navigate life on my own apart from your help. I decide what is good, what is right and wrong. And that's exactly what we've seen from Joseph's brothers over the years, isn't it? 
No regard for God and his ways. They're navigating life apart from his help, making life work on its own. And it's beginning to catch up with them. But to be a sinner is to recognize that, to realize that, to be honest about that, about your real condition. That by nature, apart from God's grace, you are one who resists him. You are one that desires to play God and be God in your life. And if you're honest, it eventually catches up with you. Because you weren't meant to sustain that. You weren't meant to play God. God is God. And God is a God of relentless pursuit and love. And he is coming after you, even though it feels like discipline, but he's coming after you. He's applying pressure to break you down, not simply to just break you down, but so that you might taste and experience love at the core of who you are in a way that you never have before, and so that he might then begin to put you back together, looking more and more like the person you were created to be. So have you reached that place in your life? Maybe generally speaking, as a person, have you reached that place in your life where you are able to honestly say, you know what, enough's enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm broken. I'm a sinner, and I need God's help. The question for us, well, and, and then it could be that you're in the category of you've done that generally speaking, but there's something going on in your life, maybe several things, and there are things that you have barricaded, protected, and guarded that you're trying to keep under the rug. Are you able to come to a place where you can say, you know what, I remain a sinner, and I can't save myself from these things. I can't heal myself from these things without God's grace and help. And that brings us to where we go from here. And we're getting, this is going to play out in the story of these brothers, but once you do that, where do you go from here? And maybe I could ask the question in this way. Why go to God with it? Why go to the God of the Bible with your acknowledgement and confession that you are a sinner? Well, the reason that we have guarded, protected, and barricaded our sin is it really comes down to the fact that we are ultimately trying to save ourselves from it. We're trying to manage it, right? You know, we, you're like, I got this. I'm in control. I, I can manage the sin. I can save myself from it. I'm all good in the end. That actually is what I would think of as religion. Now, that might surprise you. Because we do this in the context of the church. Even those of us who say, okay, I know the gospel of grace. I know the gospel is Jesus saves me. I can't do anything. But here we are still trying to manage our sin, trying to cover it up, trying to save ourselves from it. And we do this through deeds of religion, trying to be good people. And, you know, if I do enough good things, then maybe I don't have to bring, I don't have to confess this to God. I can just let it be, and I can go back to it and give into it when I want to, and then I'll come back out and be this spiritual person. You know, you know how this works. Or it could be that you don't think in terms of religion, um, but this is still what you do. You maybe try to pursue happiness. Okay, if I do whatever it takes to make myself happy, I can forget about what I'm barricading, guarding, and protecting. But at the end of the day, they're the same thing. They're self-strategies for trying to cope with our true condition. And Christianity offers us something different. It's an invitation 
to confess what is true of our condition, that we are sinners, but also to recognize that we can't save ourselves from it and we don't have to because God is the one who rescues us. This is why the, you know, we're, we're moving toward Good Friday here in several weeks. This is why Good Friday is so good and such a big deal. Because in the Christian faith, we're, we're taught that Jesus died on the cross in order to take our sins upon himself. Upon himself. That means all of the sin that in, in this moment you're trying to barricade, protect, and guard, on the cross, it was out in the open. As Jesus is naked, vulnerable on the cross, it's all out there in the open. It's not being hidden anymore. And Jesus absorbs that. And so when you talk about trusting in Jesus, it means that you trust that he actually really did take all of that junk, all of your sin, absorb it on himself on the cross. But not only that, there's a second part to that, a follow-up, that through your trust and faith in him, He gives you his rightness, his record, his reputation. So what that means is that as God sees you, he sees you through the lens of the beauty and goodness and rightness of Jesus Christ. Now this begins to make sense of why God's pursuit goes to such great extents, to such a great extent, because if you are a Christian, and you're hiding your sin, you're trying to guard and protect it. That's not who you really are. You are, your identity is now in Jesus. You are a child of God, and so God refuses to let you live this divided identity. He wants to bring out your true self, and for, you to, for your true self to come out, you have to name, identify the sin. And remember that Jesus died for that sin. So Joseph, in these words, these harsh words spoken, it's beginning, it's another way that God is awakening the conscience of these brothers. So he eventually sends them off, but they don't realize it, that their money has been put back in their sacks. Why is this such a scary proposition for them? It's because they're afraid that they're going to be accused of stealing. Here they are with the food and the money. And so their fear is that they're going to be accused of stealing. But what Joseph is doing is that he's loving his brothers. He's providing for them, for their journey. And that is a wonderful picture of the gospel, isn't it? That these undeserving brothers who have sinned against him, Joseph still shows them mercy by making sure that their needs are met and that they're provided for in their journey back home. So as we wrap this up, I want us to to think about these severe mercies on on a deeper level. You know, there's this word in the Old Testament, this Hebrew word, hased. And it's a word, it's, it's a word that's hard to define, but it's, sometimes it's defined as God's mercy, his loving kindness. It's, uh, I, I love how um, I, I've seen it sometimes defined as his loyal love. But it's a word that defines God more than anything else as he relates to his people. He is a God of loyal love, a God of mercy. And he is so loyal to us that he's willing to apply the pressure 
He's willing to use severe mercies in our lives. Even though, we might point the, even though we're probably going to point the finger at him, even though we're going to be angry at him, he's still willing to do it in order to awaken our conscience and restore us to him. So the invitation to us this morning is this. Come out of the darkness. Come out. You don't have to live in the darkness any longer. Come out into the light. Jesus died for your sins. They were out in the open upon him. He absorbed them. So come out of the darkness into the light. Name your sin and experience the deep, loyal love of God for you in Christ. Do you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning? Don't resist that. Don't walk out of this building this morning. You're feeling the conviction now, but don't walk out of the building this morning and think to yourself, all right, that conviction's starting to fade I can manage this. I'll be good. I can cover this up. I don't have to confess it. Don't do that. Come out into the light. Allow the conviction of the Holy Spirit to awaken your conscience. Confess your sin to God, possibly to others, and experience the mercy and love of God. Maybe it's that you very recently have been found out. Maybe you've been exposed. Your sin has come out into the open, and you're feeling really, really vulnerable right now. And you're not exactly sure where things go from here. You're worried about maybe relationships that it's impacted. Um, Maybe you're just concerned about your own self-understanding of who you are. Maybe you thought that you were a better person than that. You weren't capable of that. Don't run away from that either, that vulnerability. As hard as it is, lean into that vulnerability. Find Christ in that vulnerability because he is life for you. Consider it God's mercy to you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Not simply for those who I have preached to this morning, but for myself. I pray that you would begin with me. You would convict me of my sin, that I would be willing to name and identify and confess my sin and experience your love for me through Christ. I pray that as a church family, we would have more of that experience, that we would know your mercy, not just simply abstractly, but really, concretely, personally. And that because of that, we would desire for our neighbors, and for those in our community to know your loyal love expressed in mercy. I pray for courage for many of us, um, for courage to respond to the conviction that maybe we're feeling, the courage to confess our sin and to maybe have hard conversations or uh, whatever it might involve. I, I pray that you would give us the power of the Spirit to walk in accordance with your ways and your desires for us. I pray that we would be willing to receive your severe mercy, and to recognize at the end that it's not judgment on us, but it's actually your deep, loyal mercy and love. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.